there's just this love affair of public radio and community and college radio and, and the commitment that people put into it and an appreciation of how unique it is in the world. The American public radio institution is unique. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmandel. Hello, everybody. It's Eric Klein, your co-host of Radio Survivor here with you today. And we're talking about – well, Paul, I want to start this way. Paul, when I started uh, when I started playing in this sandbox of Radio Survivor where we try to shine a light and talk about uh, things that we love in the public radio world, in the world of non-commercial radio and college radio and these low-power FM neighborhood radio stations that are popping up all over the country, um, I thought that Radio Survivor, the website, should have a list of all these stations that you could click on to hear them. And you agreed. Great idea. And then we kind of realized uh, how much work that would be. You know, what's funny is somebody emailed us just the other day asking if we would have that. And the reason they emailed us is because there was an article in the New York Times uh, published on January 6th uh, looking at the low-power FM radio explosion, but with a specific focus on the Puget Sound region, so Seattle right. area, and in Portland. And uh, the reporter there, Kirk Johnson, he contacted us. He talked with Jennifer. He talked with me. He talked with Matthew. Jennifer Waits and Matthew Lasagna. Yes, our, our, our uh, colleagues here at Radio Survivor. Um, and he did a lot of reporting, I know, on the ground in Seattle. He talked with our friend Sabrina Roach, the doer from Brown Paper Tickets, who helped launch a lot of stations and in this Seattle. And this is really exciting because Low Power FM is this uh, huge mm-hmm. movement, this unprecedented historic uh, growth in radio in the United States Yes, um, that is not an internet thing exactly so no one talks about not no one talks about it but it's it just is under it's not a new app right it's not a new app it's not a tesla car um it's not a new smartphone and yet and it's it the biggest growth of community radio community, in our lifetimes yeah, or ever exactly perhaps. exactly and so it's lovely to see it covered in the new york times and the approach of the article is really looking at the communitarian aspect with and the, the question which which kirk the reporter asked me was specifically around Portland, Oregon, where we live. It's like, why does Portland uh, spawn these stations? Why are they? What is it about Portland? Good question. You know that that causes that, and I think this is more of background, which which is certainly important. But my own view is that you know there there was been a kind of community media community here in Portland for a long time. And it may not have been radio specifically, but there's been a long time community around independent publishing, mm-hmm. both in terms of super, super uh, you know, independent, which is like zines, photocopied zines, all the way up to small independent publishers who you know, do Offset and, sure. and, and, and such. I'm reminded of one of our early guests on the Radio Survivor program, uh, Julie Sabatier, who hosted a show, a proto-podcast, as it were. It was, such a, it was a radio show and a podcast back in the beginning of the history of this sort of media called uh, Destination DIY, about DIY culture. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, because Portland is a very do-it-yourself Exactly. And I city. think it's, it's that. And, and you've seen, you know, there, there's really good network of, of independent bands, and there's venues where they right. can play. And yet... 
And yet there was not a lot of independent radio. Basically, here in Portland, prior to the explosion of low-power FM, we had a very long-standing yeah. uh, community radio station, KBOO, KBOO, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary yeah, A very this unique year. community institution, a wonderful independent exactly. radio station. And we will be talking more about that on the show uh, this year because it's, it's a pretty massive celebration, I think. But that was, that was about it in terms of actual yeah. on the radio. And because it had because it had been around for so long and it was such a legacy place, uh, if you wanted a, a, a turn, it, you kind of had to while. wait in line. Yeah, there was a lot. There there wasn't a lot of uh, room. Uh, yeah, because to I mean, get on the air. There's, they they only have the same number of hours a day as any station. Plenty of commercial stations, and there have been some good ones that have come and gone, but most of them had uh, been sort of homogenized. Yeah. So Portland by, has a uh, huge number of low power FM stations for a city its size. At this point, new yeah. stations, new stations going on the air, and, and yet you know, where do you find a list of these stations on the exactly? Internet? And, and and so because of this article, which mentioned Radio Survivor and linked to us, we had somebody yeah. email and say, "Hey, where's this list?" And I had to say, "Well, here's some places that you can look, but right. uh, we don't have that list." Radio and, Survivor doesn't have the list, but one of the things I learned doing this podcast with you, Paul, is that there's no. The gover- the U.S. government doesn't have a no. list of these stations, which kind of blows – I mean, it's fine. But, like, you can't just Google what are all the low-power FM radio stations in the United States. No. You cannot. Uh, and We found uh, a thing that's ungoogleable. Well, it's – you know, it's one of these things. special thing it's, in 2018. It's, it's both the – to me, it is both the benefit – it's one of the great things about a non-commercial radio in the United States is that it – it can be so independent that it is so spread out that stations can be anywhere and everywhere. They don't require mountains and mountains and mountains of paperwork and approvals right. as it does in most countries, frankly. But that means that they can also be isolated, unnetworked. Uh, and while we're part of, it, of, I think, an effort in certain ways to help network up these stations, they don't always know about each other. Sure. And, and oftentimes they aren't known even in their own communities because – it's just that extra effort. So there is one website that's trying to do some of this work and not only just give you a directory, but give you live streams and archives. I'm so glad because I wasn't going to take that on as a volunteer, despite <laughs> despite the passion that I have for the idea of the project of creating a, a list of every single non-commercial radio station, especially the new low-power FMs, uh, a place where you could click to hear them. Gosh, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spend... 12 hours. I'm not going to spend 100 hours doing it. But there is a website we have we have discovered. They don't have a list of all of the stations, but uh, but they're working on it. But they're working on it. It is a place where you can go to click to hear these stations all over the country. And, and listen to their archives. So it's RadioFreeAmerica.com. They are uh, providing this service of, of streaming for these non-commercial radio stations. They're a new endeavor, and we had the opportunity to speak to them. On the line, we have, from Radio Free America, Kenneth Pushkin, who is founder and CEO. Welcome, Kenneth. Hello there. And we have Jeff Abrams, who is the station relations manager. Welcome, Jeff. Paul, thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, To get started, I think it's just good for people to understand what Radio Free America is. Kenneth, can you tell us a little bit about what is the service that you provide and to what kind of stations you provide the service? Sure. Um, Radio Free America is the online platform for all public radio stations, and that includes NPR, college, community, and LPFM stations. What we provide that is uh, really unique is our two-week 
program archive service. So we are able to uh, have figured out, and we're the only ones that do this, how to archive programming from public radio stations so that listeners can play it on demand any time. Uh, that's what we do, and you know, there's a number of other wonderful features on our platform, including a, a DJ platform where all the affiliated station DJs have their own page, and uh, it's integrated with the programming archive link for those DJs and has all their information and avatars and social links and so on and so forth. So it's a community for public radio stations around the country. And so in when, a nutshell. when you say these archives, so it means that I can go, if there's a station on your platform on Radio Free America, I can go look up that station page and go back and listen to something that happened last Thursday. Exactly. The archive, by in compliance with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, uh, allows for the shows to be archived and saved for two weeks. So if it's within two weeks, you can hear it. And of course, it, it's always rolling, so it refreshes itself every 15 minutes. Got it. And you provide this to all kinds of non-commercial stations. Uh, what's, who opt in, right? Who the opt into this, opt in. right? Yes. That's something which they Absolutely, have to... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They sign the terms and conditions, and Jeff brings them on board, and uh, away we go. And we start and archiving their programming. How expensive is this for the stations? It's free. Uh, I should have mentioned that. It's a completely <laughs> free service. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. And, and this is an obligatory question I have for free services. You know, we're at this stage, I think, in the internet where we've seen free services come and go. And these are free services often that, that were wonderful and the people behind them were, were really trying to do great service to, uh, and, and provide something really wonderful to people's lives but weren't able to kind of kind of carry it on. A lot of times it's because they were venture funded and the funders eventually get tired of funding it or they get bought out and, and the bigger company shuts them down. So how are you able to fund Radio Free America and provide this service for free? Well, fortunately, uh, I've done well in my life in other careers. And between me and family and friends, it's privately funded. And we recognize having you know, been active with this iteration for four years now. We're in it for the long haul. We know that it takes time to build something like this carefully because it's it's not just a widget. It's not, uh, you know, a, a quick app, all of which are wonderful. Uh, what we're doing is actually, you know, fairly complicated. We're, we're creating a network. And so, you know, knowing that as we've, as we've entered into it, we recognize the complexities and, uh, you know, the requirements. So it takes time. Yeah, a, ne and, a network of non-commercial radio stations that you can find all on one website. Exactly. This takes time, and uh, we recognize that, and we have our path, our roadmap, and you know, we're carefully refining and improving the site, constantly upgrading our scalability, our stability, best-of-class architecture, and so on and so forth. So uh, I'm not sure which other stations have been free and come and go. Uh, we see the perils in this, but we're here for the long haul. Yes, and you and I first talked, Kenneth, uh, from Radio Free America about four years ago because right. it was right before you launched. You were running a crowdfunding campaign, and Correct. I interviewed you for an article on, on, on Radio Survivor for a blog article, which we'll link to in our show notes at radiosurvivor.com, and you were sort of laying out the plans for what you wanted to provide, 
And that's indeed what you're providing right now. And I guess you've been up and running for about four years, correct? Even that should be acknowledged. Yeah, not, only, yeah, exactly. not only did you have a plan and that you fundraised that for that plan successfully, but here we are in the future and the plan has been implemented. Yeah. So, I mean, when, when did uh, Radio Free America launch? Uh, we launched in 2015 on, okay. on air. When you and I talked, it was uh, – you know, it was really the germ of this current iteration. And since that time, we've been through three unique iterations of the project, of the, the look and feel, the skin, the user interface, and so forth, to where we are now uh, into advanced versions of our 2.0. Uh, if you go to the site, I, I think you'll see that it's, uh, it's fairly robust and it's, it works well. In the past four years, you know, we've come a long way. And we have a long way to go. So, Jeff Abrams, you are the station relations manager for Radio Free America. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, when you talk with stations, are you reaching out directly to non-commercial stations or stations coming to you? Um, how, how do stations get hooked up and, and have their archives there at Radio Free America? Right. Yeah. So it's a little of both. Um, fortunately, we've had some really uh, vociferous, vociferous advocates of the service throughout the non-com community. And so more and more, it seems as though uh, stations are approaching us. Um, but, you know, it's a little of both, obviously. When I do go do outreach to stations, and particular station managers or PDs, what I generally begin the conversation with is my own experience as a station manager at Radio Boise and first learning about Kenneth's service uh, I just sort of relay that story of oh my gosh are you kidding you're going to provide this fantastic service to allow us to transition into the digital age and you're going to do it for free how quickly please how how, how soon can I sign up you know um and so generally, that's the departure point that I like to use with station managers. Um, but it's really, after a little bit of education, uh, it's, it seems to be a fairly um, uh, compelling argument to them. Because in so many ways, we solve problems for these stations that, uh, that they've been wrestling with for a long time. You know, they've wanted to transition into this digital uh, age. Uh, they understand that uh, typically, uh, service providers have been one of the uh, support mechanisms that have allowed stations to thrive. You know, yes, stations rely on listeners and program hosts, volunteers, staffers, but um, the business and the technical communities have also historically been um, really influential in the success of stations that are compelling and do great programming, you know. And so I think we recognize that and we sort of just want to be part of that especially for stations with modest means that are challenged all the time to make technological advances at the pace that um that really is necessary to remain relevant to some of their fans of their programming um especially the younger ones and so we occupy that role in the same way that their volunteer pool does and their DJs do and their local um, businesses that underwrite their stations. We, we're part of that constellation of uh, support mechanisms for stations to really thrive. And I can reflect, you know, I, I was a college radio advisor not too long ago. And, you know, as part of my role, you know, I helped to make sure that 
the stream was always up and running and we were looking for the ability to archive, which we eventually did because basically a volunteer wrote some scripts to make it work for us. But it was clunky and it was uh, error prone. And, you know, this was now going back more than five years ago. So before Radio Free America was on the scene and we looked around for a contractor or a streaming service that would help us with it. And it was tough to come up with. And and I'll be frank, I found that much of the customer service from a lot of streaming services wasn't too fantastic in terms of helping hold our hands with some of the technical stuff. And I had, you know, a university engineering team at my disposal. So I had folks who new network management and things like this. And I can just, I can only imagine what it's like for a lot of community and public and college stations that maybe don't have someone on staff, can't afford to have someone on staff who, who really understands networks. So, so Jeff, when you, when you get a station signed up to, to Radio Free America, I mean, how much handholding is there? How much do you help them kind of get onboarded and get, and get rolling? Really, we just have two essential pieces of information that we need. Most of the sign-up process is just cursory contact information and so forth, uh, where the station is transmitting from. Um, In general, though, it's the two pieces that I mentioned. One is the streaming URL. Then that way, essentially what happens is we record a station's web stream. Uh Uh, One of the items that Kenneth didn't mention that we also offer is essentially a live stream link on a station's member station page at RFA. And so in addition to the archives, we also provide a link to their live stream. Well, what we do is we integrate that into our back end um, and the platform essentially records that stream, uh, pushes it to servers, and then we stitch those recording episodes together to reflect the station's program grid, their roster on any given day. And so those are the two pieces that we need, the station's URL, and then we need a station uh, administrator, whoever that is, to input their program schedule one time, and then it's done. So it's a very kind of painless way to, to begin the process. Beyond that, uh, the next point of engagement is to bring their DJs into the fold, and an administrator can do that by inviting uh, a program host to uh, join the service, and they get an automated message that essentially allows them to engage their profile on Radio Free America so their fans and supporters can find them in their particular show. So um, it's a very straightforward adoption process. I mean, I've had stations come on board, express interest, and have them archiving in 20 minutes wow. at the most. Okay. You know? um, particularly, uh, I should add, if they are uh, if they're subscribers to Spinatron's uh, playlisting service, which many non-commercial stations are doing for ease of uh, sound exchange reporting um, and as a service to their listeners. And if they are Spinatron members, they can adopt and integrate their their program information, their schedule, through essentially a one-click API integration that allows all that program metadata to be imported into our platform uh, immediately, assuming it's current. And uh, at that point, it's a very quick adoption. 
Yeah, Spinatron is an online playlisting system and 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 program tracker that that again that non-commercial stations principally can subscribe to because non-commercial radio, as many Radio Survivor listeners know, um, plays a much greater variety of music than you hear on most commercial radio. Therefore, the need to keep those playlists where you have thousands of unique tracks and songs played every week um, is a big task. Most stations used to do it with paper. And uh, Spintron is one of the services out there amongst many that allow you to do it uh, on the web and and keep a playlist. Uh, Jeff Abrams from Radio Free America, how many stations do you have on the platform? We have somewhere between 125 and 130 right now. So uh, the adoption has been, um, you know, it's, it's been very encouraging to see. Um, and again, as Kenneth mentioned, it's really from all sectors of the non-com uh, landscape, from tiny LPs that are licensed to uh, libraries to consequential uh, NPR affiliates uh, in larger cities. You know, so it really ranges across the board. Uh, we're heavy uh, in college, heavy in the community sphere in general, and then I guess maybe the one um, uh, caveat that I would mention is that uh, we don't. Uh, service don't make a habit of servicing the uh, religious broadcasters. And we're talking about Radio Free America's website that I'm very excited exists because I've always wanted this opportunity to uh, have a one-stop shop to click around on the internet around these unique radio stations. I know that there's there's easy ways to find uh, there's other ways to find radio stations on the web, but I'm uh, excited that there's a place to find these non-commercial especially stations and, and get archives. That, that like you know, right. in, in case there was something you heard, just heard, learned happened last week, now you can go and listen to it. I want to spin the dial on these kinds of stations across the across the the the, the, the United States. Oh, do you have uh, any stations outside of the United States? As long as we're learning, no, about that that sort of we we have uh, copyright law that sort of uh, ah. is implicated in that situation. But just to draw the distinction, Eric, between. Uh, what you might be referring to as a, as a typical um, directory service, like a tune-in, mm-hmm. we're actually much more robust than a tune-in. We're, we're not just a directory, a yellow pages of non-commercial stations. We're actually content providers uh, in the sense that we just time shift the local programming right. that stations generate and make it available for two weeks. And so um, there's a distinction there. And there's also a distinction between the other online streaming services, such as, um, you know, Pandora and SoundCloud that, um, you know, they don't have that sort of um, the intimacy and the companionship that media consumers many times, oftentimes cite as one of the most important and integral uh, elements that radio actually brings. Can, and so those are the two distinctions between a directory service and then also the basket of uh, streaming services out there as well. Kenneth Pushkin, the founder and CEO of Radio Free America, can you talk more about that idea that you just mentioned, this intimacy? Uh, how does a website that uh, lists community radio stations and, and provides a streaming service for them uh, create intimacy for listeners? Well, I mean, basically speaking, public radio stations and the DJs affiliated with them, these are passionate curators of their content, whether it's, and it's what we call long tail content. It's not stuff that you would typically hear on commercial radio. So you have people that are 
aficionados of anything from reggae to bluegrass to thrash metal, you name it. And these people are pretty, as I said, passionate and they, it brings the human element into it, which you miss on commercial radio uh, and also on the other major streaming services for the most part uh, that Jeff mentioned, sure. the Pandora's, the Spotify's. Yeah, they have, you know, they do have their celebrity DJ shows and so forth like that. These people, however, the, the college and community uh, radio DJs, as I think you are well aware, that they're, they're passionate about what they do. They, they really collect. They really study. They're looking for new material all the time. They're trying to provide their audiences with a, a great listening experience. And they, they talk about their programming. They talk about the artists, uh, events, everything surrounding it. So that's the intimacy. That's the human element right. uh, that's, and that's, that, that, that's available in public radio right. in general, but and that's you, what you the, don't get. And that's what the stations are providing their listeners. I'm, I'm curious how, how your service that is clearly benefiting those stations um, helps to boost that intimacy. Like what, what kinds of things well, can you even do? Yeah, well, the DJ platform and, and our search and recommendation engine features on the site allow listeners to interact with the DJs, with content contributors, uh, and vice versa. And, uh-huh. it, and it's, also the, it's also the place where artists slash content contributors, original content creators, it's where they meet the DJs who are looking for their new material all the time. And the listener is, is the big winner in that, in that configuration. So I think that, you know, the interaction between our audience and the DJs and content contributors creates this intimate community. The other thing that I might add to what Kenneth mentioned is that um, we know from research that's gone on for, for decades, essentially, that listeners, non-com listeners in particular, are loyal to their home station and they just want new ways, especially now in, in 2018, new ways, new new types of experience that, that sort of expand that relationship with their home station. And so it's that sort of place where we can help expand that relationship. And it's out of that that those fans then can share links. They can send a message to their friend on the East Coast from Boise and say, here's a link to this show that I love. They can't do that with a streaming directory. They can cite, they can specifically link their friend to the show that they heard last night on Radio Boise at 10 p.m. and say, check this show out, you know? Mm -hmm. And so in that way, um, not only are we building experiences that make the fidelity of local listeners to their home station more impactful, but we also, in, in a significant way, I'm hoping, are going to continue to cement the support nationally for this resource that we have, um, these programming services far and wide, that number in the thousands across our country, and 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 therefore continue to build support for that type of media content that's that's out there. And we just heard from Jeff Abrams, Station Relations Manager at Radio Free America. And we're also talking with CEO and founder Kenneth Pushkin. This is Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. And 
we're going to have show notes that help you to follow up on many of the things that we're talking about. You can certainly, we'll have links to Radio Free America, so you can learn more about that. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 125. My name is Paul Reismandel, and with me is my co-host and co-producer, Eric Klein. Um, Jeff, you mentioned before that you were at a station called Radio Boise when you learned about Radio Free America. I assume it's a public station. Is it like a community station? Is it a college station? What kind of station was that? Yeah, I, I founded the station um, in sort of the, the, the wake of the 2007 NCE window. And um, we so garnered support. So that's non-commercial support. education uh, license window, an opportunity when people had to go apply for new non-commercial radio stations. Go ahead. Yeah, precisely. And uh, so, uh, you know, we were licensed in uh, 08 or given a CP and went on air ultimately in 2011. So, the station's been transmitting now for um, over six years, and um, previous to that, we sort of had a uh, uh, stream-only iteration. Um, and then with the, with the rapid pace of Boise, the way that it's growing, uh, we were just sort of in the right place at the right time and had some fantastic uh, tailwinds. Uh, we got funding in a really tough era. Um, and um, gosh, the station probably has uh, close to a hundred programmers now that are they're broadcasting live, I think, pretty much twenty four hours a day every day of the week. And um, it's it's been fantastic to see the uh, the resource that it's become for that community. It's just very satisfying. Kenneth, uh, you also have a history in radio before Radio Free America, and I think it's an interesting story I'd like to like to dig into because I mean you've had the Re- Radio Free America name is something you've kind of operated under for decades, if if I'm not incorrect, isn't that right, Kenneth? Can you tell that story? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, well, uh, it, it's been a long time, and I don't want to date myself, uh, <laughs> Paul, but uh, yeah, back in in, in 1980. Uh, I had an idea. I wanted to produce some music, uh, local music in New Mexico, uh, and just do something with public radio. I had been affiliated with uh, KUNM, the local university radio station, University of New Mexico Radio, which is a, a major NPR affiliate. And I, I just came, I was looking for a name. And so we had our little sessions and bounced around all sorts of names and came up with this name, Radio Free American, and I thought, well, that's a great name. And when I went to look it up in the trademark registry, the United States government had just, like a week before, abandoned the name. It was actually intended to be uh, sort of a knockoff of Radio Free Europe, the voice of freedom behind the Iron Curtain. And Radio Free America was intended to be the same thing for Cuba, essentially. Ah. Uh, (laughs) I think we might have to define these terms just in case uh, listeners to Radio Survivor are not familiar with this history of radio. uh, and I'm gonna. I'll throw it out there, and then smarter people can correct me. This was this was a radio station that the U.S. government would operate in Europe, and because radio knows no boundaries, especially um, uh, you know, it, countries in Europe are small. You the the United States could broadcast uh, into the communist countries where where that sort of uh, uh, propaganda would maybe be uh, received by certain listeners who were trapped in those countries without any other sources of information. 
so that was the concept during the Cold War. Yes, Correct. and in that 1980, it would still have been the Cold War. Yeah. <laughs> it was still the Cold War, and uh, Radio Free America was, was, was to be for Cuba what Radio Free Europe we, was to, for, for Europe. Is Radio Free Europe still on the air? It is still on the air, yeah. yeah. And it it's, uh, runs alongside of the Voice of America. Right. Uh, they keep it going. It's actually rather viable uh, in, still today. In any case, I, was, I got the name. I considered myself very fortunate. I love the name. Uh, and at that time— You started broadcasting uh, propaganda into Cuba, right? <laughs> <laughs> we were—you uh, know, I didn't know what to do with the name. I thought, okay, now I've got this name. I was producing uh, local bands and so forth. And then I, I just was sitting around uh, musing on the name and thought, well, what does that name mean? What does that name embody? And I was friends with a guy named Bobby Haber, uh, who built a company called College Media Journal, and they print, published a printed playlist uh, program where they monitored college radio stations in the country and created a newsletter, uh, which then became an online program and, and went on to, to do some great things, CMJ. Yeah, have a very huge influence, uh, yeah. They had a huge influence. So Bobby and I kind of started together in L.A. Um, and I was going out there and I went directly with, to the college radio stations. With I created a prototype 30-minute uh, radio show, which became a syndicated show, which I called New Music, The Alternative 10. Because back in ninth, and that was in 81. And in, at that time, that was sort of the height of the new wave and the beginning you know, punk and all of that was happening. And you, wait, you we used the word alternative to describe it? Yeah, it was new music, the alternative 10. I'm just impressed that you pulled that adjective out of, out of, the, it, it was out of current the in 1981. Okay. Cause yeah. That, but that's before you could go to the alternative music section at a CD store at Tower no, Records. No, but it's, didn't it's have the word, it's the word that college stations would use. Ah, so that's its a, origin. Right. The college radio. It, was, it wasn't some clever music industry guy. They were just aping the college stations. Isn't that right, Kenneth? <laughs> That's right. So, so we had a, it was a great show. We, uh, we, we, we featured bands that nobody had ever heard of before. We interviewed them, bands like uh, U2, Stray Cats, uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners. I mean, I, I could just go, the, the Eurythmics, on and on and on. And these were brand new bands at that time. And they were, and college radio then, as it is today, was breaking the new bands, maybe even more so back then. Right. And uh, they were very influential. So we had this alternative. We had a comedy segment with a guy named Ian Scholes, who's still working at KQED in San Francisco uh, as a comedian in his little segments. Uh, we had an astrology forecast. We had all kinds. Of, we, we mixed it up and we did it. And we wound up uh, syndicating that to, and distributing it on 33 and a third LP discs manually through the mail to 600 radio stations. In the early radio. 80s. Yeah, from 81 uh, through 83. And it was a blast. And, we, you know, it was, it was a cult thing. People that are in their 50s today may remember that if they were listening to college stations back at that time. Kenneth Bush, can I have uh, to just but, jump in? Can I hear it today if I want to? Are there archives of your show out there? You know, it's not published. I, I do have all of the discs. I have the whole set. So, I'll, you know, at some point I should... Uh, copy them down and play them. I've been encouraged to do that. 
Yes, uh, archive, where to put it. Yeah. archive.org, please. <laughs> yeah, if you're not going to put that it on your own website. Fun. You know, because they all the interviews. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's historical it stuff. A, yeah, we're, we're, we here at Radio Survivor stuff. are very excited about the historical value of the LPs you just described of your radio show. So, yeah, please share with the world. Yeah, and I remember it, later on. In, sometimes. Say that again. I'm always looking. I'm always looking for the copies of these programs on eBay, eBay because there were 600 of each show out there. Yeah. And occasionally they do show up on eBay, and I've been buying them whenever I see them. That's fun. So I've 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 got a stash of these shows. It's it's a riot. It's great to reflect on how easy we have it today in in 2018. So even we at Radio Survivor we distribute this show. We have a we have a handful of affiliates uh, around the country, and we're able to do it you know semi instantaneously online. People can just download it, and and that, it took a lot of money. Never mind the time to press LPs and then stick them in the mail to 600 stations. But that's how shows are distributed. Then that's how they. Distributed Casey Kasem. That's right. We had a little uh, assembly line. You know, I had the, the, the tables in the office, and we had three or four people. One would stick the the, the the record in the sleeve, and then you had the the program guy, which was a sheet and the return card, and it was a whole setup into the into the envelope. And then I would take them in a gunny sack to the main office of the post to the main post office. So it was, it was really antiquity. Yeah. And, you know, I was in college radio just a few years later, beginning in the late 80s. And I remember uh, that we would get service with these kind of shows that are a lot like what you're talking about. So the idea had some legs. And I think even CMJ at some point was producing their own shows, but we would get them on CD. Which, uh, you know, a little cheaper to mail, a little less weight. A little cheaper to manufacture. Probably at the time even a little cheaper to manufacture. But I remember seeing those come in as well. Um, You know, so the idea definitely had legs even if uh, you sort of hung it up a few years later. And and why did you decide to end the show? Well, you know, the show ultimately would have to make some kind of uh, money to continue. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And commercial radio, of course – at that time, they had Arbitron ratings. Uh, now, I think it's all wrapped up under Nielsen, but uh, they called them Arbitron ratings for commercial radio, and that was the basis on which advertisers invested and, and made ad placements. And there were no Arbitron ratings for any non-commercial station, so it was very hard for us to justify our listenership or prove it. Uh, so we did get a few sponsors. Um, we had some jeans, we had Jordash jeans and some other sponsors, but it was not substantial enough to keep the project moving. So we just ceased operations. You know, we, we didn't close it entirely. We, uh, I kept the name and, uh, went on into the sunset and went in, went into other facets of my life. Yeah. Uh, so I put it, I put it away. Kenneth Pushkin, uh, I, I, I'd like to know, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to cut off your narrative, but I sure. want to know, uh, what did you learn from this from the project that did uh, that had its uh, life? It had a short life, maybe as far as a radio program goes, right? You said about two years, but um, yeah. what did you learn from from doing it? Like, uh, why was well, it worth well, doing? Well, first of all, it was great fun. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I loved the content. I liked the community. So those things stayed with me. And what I found in doing it, first of all, it really embodied the name. I had found what the name meant to me and to other people. And I also recognized, because it was a big cult success at the time, that 
uh, college radio stations and non-commercial radio was a very, in my view, a uh, very interesting, viable niche yeah. that was, uh, as time went on, that I recognized was undercapitalized and underappreciated. And that's why uh, at a certain point in my life, 25 years later, I came back to it and said, it's time to revisit this. Yeah, and you revisited it by uh, founding this wonderful radio uh, website called Radio Free America, where you, people can listen to non-commercial stations from around the United States. But I want to ask you again about the uh, the initial iteration of the of your of the name of the brand Radio Free America you're distributing sure. a sh- a show on college radio that is uh showcasing the kinds of music that was about to take over the mainstream of of radio of pop culture but but hadn't yet and you just said that uh this show Radio Free America on, that you distributed on LPs uh that it had a cult following that it was successful and I just want to hear how do you know in 1980 early 1980s that something is successful now that now that right. everything's a, a a retweet or a facebook like what's success look like in 1983 uh, right how did we measure that how did we know it was successful yeah is i think is the question and the answer is that we would send out we were in communication with this the managers and program directors at these stations and we were sending out um the way that stations subscribed and what they were required to do to continue being affiliates was they had to send return uh, a postcard that uh, required a whole bunch of information, everything you could think of about the station, uh, all of that. And when they played the show on their, on their channel and everything about it. And, and so when we started out, this is how I know it was successful. We, we sent out, you know, a dozen or 50 uh, records uh, set, uh, sets to different stations, and it just started spreading uh, through the CMJ kind of network and all of the college stations. And within several months, we had 600 affiliates, and they were all calling us all the time. And the, and the major record labels were, were I had a pile of records every day at my door because they all wanted to have their records mm. played on the show. So those were the gauges of success. As I say, there were no Arbitron ratings or no digital Google analytics or anything to look at. So, uh, you know, that was we just it was just a feeling and uh, the feedback we were getting and the exposure. I mean, it was being played everywhere. Uh, all the, you know, I would hear it in, in New Mexico on the local radio stations and knowing that uh, by virtue of those postcards, that stations were playing it five times a week. And so they were playing it over and over and over again. It was very popular. And what we're talking about is a radio show called Radio Free America, distributed via vinyl LP to college stations back in the 1980s. Um, And one of the guys behind that is Kenneth Pushkin, who is now the CEO and founder of RadioFreeAmerica.com, which is a website where you can go find uh, community, public, and college radio stations, low-power FM radio stations, and listen to two weeks of archives. Yeah, either the live streams or the archives. And the archives, and also, you know, interact with the DJs 
and uh, find out more about these different stations and all the different programs. And that's really why we started this conversation. But Kenneth has such an interesting uh, history. Radio runs thick in your blood, doesn't it, Kenneth? And it does as well for Jeff Abrams, who joined us on the line, who in addition to being uh, the guy who works with the radio stations who are on Radio Free America, helped to start Radio Boise in Boise, Idaho, a community radio station there that's been on the air since uh, since 2008. Is that correct? Did I get that right, uh, Jeff? 2011 is actually when we went I see. on 2011 air. is when you went on the air. Yeah, yeah. so because, that's wonderful. But, but Paul guesses 2008 because uh, that's when you started. That's when you got your license yeah. and started that process which, of which going I always on the like, air. I always like underlining here on Radio Survivor uh, that the process of getting a radio station on the air, even tiny ones, uh, it's a it's a long haul. And the people that put in the work to do it um, – it, I'm always just uh, in awe that that they are willing to do all of put these, in all those the, all these the hard years, work yeah. and often what it takes years because it's not just the matter of buying a transmitter uh, and and just going on the air. It's finding a place to put the antenna, finding yeah. the and often having to deal with city officials and zoning and Jeff, Jeff all Abrams. Kinds of do you want to talk a little bit about that station? Like uh, we just underlined the amount of work it is to get a station like that on the air. Why did you undertake this project? Why did Boise? deserve your station somebody had to in short um the funny there are no shortage of hurdles that is for sure as as you both have alluded to one of the funny things is at one point i found myself at a community broadcasters conference speaking with one of the panelists at a a breakout session and uh, she she was from atlanta georgia and she said jeff i hope you know what you're in for what you're getting into um when we brought the station in atlanta and i forget their call set when we brought the station aboard it took us seven years before we were even on the air and i kind of looked at her in dismay (laughs) and i basically asked the same question of her that you both did of me i said you really waited seven years to make that happen and you had the, the <laughs> wherewithal to stick with it. She said, yes, we finally were on the air years later. And the funny thing is, is it was probably eight or nine years that I had been at the Endeavor before we went on the air. Because the very first call I made, and, and you probably know the name, uh, there were three of them. One was Carol Pearson at uh, National Federation of Community Broadcasters. I remember Carol when she, yep. I mean, she's still she's still around, but I remember she's when she was at the NFCB, it. yeah. That's right. Uh, the second one was to uh, Petri Dish at Prometheus. And then the third call went to uh, Michael Brown in Portland, Oregon, uh, your backyard, to tell me, he's a broadcast engineer, to tell me if we could even do this. Because that was the early 2000s, 0203 era. Boise uh, wasn't as big as it is now, but uh, it was still a very crowded spectrum landscape. And so I wanted to make sure if I was going to, you know, even start to do the homework of what it took to to put a station on the air i needed to find out if we had a vacant frequency and we threaded the needle there was one vacant frequency it 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 was uh the only 
way that you could utilize it is if you shoehorned it into uh, an area of the valley that was actually 50 air miles from Boise. Hmm. So we identified the frequency. We identified a site, that particular site, fortuitously in some wild uh, stroke of fortune, uh, actually had an existing transmission facility. Uh, and so we had a frequency, we had a site, we had a willing landlord, and, and that's a start, mm-hmm. right? At that point, I said, all right, if we're 50 air miles away, we've got to do something else to boost our signal in the corridor of downtown. Again, as luck would have it, a translator window actually came open at that point. Ultimately, we were able to secure uh, not one but two translator frequencies. And translators we, are, are repeater stations. It's essentially a repeater station that is much uh, – it's powered at a much lower ERP than our originating signal. Which so that's was a lower power. <laughs> expect uh, to, to 8,000 watts. You have a downtown translator, which transmits uh, at around 100 watts. So the pieces kept falling into place, and ultimately you start convincing yourself that, hmm, (laughs) if I don't have enough evidence right now that says this can absolutely be done, at least I have enough to get me to wake up in the morning and continue to try to find that answer. All of this this work to bring a non-commercial station on the air in Boise, Idaho, in in the (laughs) early aughts. That's right. That's yes. Right. Uh, and, so and, then funding came into play and the rest of it. Yeah. And, and it's important to note here, I think, for, for folks uh, you know, who, who are listening is that you know, this is a full power station. And the opportunities to uh, put in an application for a non-commercial full power station, one that can be powered over 100 watts, thousands of watts, uh, happen very rarely. Yeah. So you've got to be ready for that application window. Um, obviously, they take – more money, more time, more effort to put on the air than a low-power FM station, which is the class of stations we often talk about here simply because lots of them are going on the air because there was an opportunity to get those licenses in 2013. But right now, if you wanted to start a new non-commercial station of any sort, uh, you're a little out of luck. You, there is no opportunity to file, file an application. And, and basically, the only opportunity you would have is to go buy a license uh, on the market, which you can, at least not for low power FM, but for non-commercial, but then the prices are in the thousands to millions of dollars. So just I pointed out to show you how important timing is and how at this point in time you need to be ready and how rare and valuable that opportunity is to put these yeah. stations on and, the air. And I, I think the logical uh, conclusion of that of that argument is how rare and valuable these stations that are yeah, on the air now, they, how, how, how wonderful they are. And that's what, I mean, one of the th- whole reasons we do this show radio survivor is to sort of um, highlight that fact for the listeners that, uh, you know, as I was growing up, I keep saying it because this is how I thought, I just thought the radio spectrum was a given. You turn on the radio, there's all the stations. They're always there. They're, you know, just, you sort of take them for granted and then you find the good ones and you, and you stick with those. And to find out, you know, nowadays that the good ones are, are there because of, um, the hard work of, of a lot of people and, uh, like a used bookstore in a city where I live, they could be gone 
in a matter of months if they're not supported. Yeah, they need to support. And and turning back to our main topic here, RadioFreeAmerica.com, uh, Kenneth Pushkin, uh, you're the CEO and founder. Um, I mean, this has also been a long journey for you. You've had sort of, it sounds like the idea has been around for you for a long time. You were able to finally kind of begin putting it into action in, in 2013, but it took until 2015 until you launched and you continue to build on that. Um, can you tell us at all what's in store for Radio Free America? Is there anything on your roadmap that you, that you can uh, reveal to us? Yes. Uh, well, a lot. Uh, but in, in, in a nutshell, uh, we have a native podcast delivery service uh, that we're going to be uh, providing to uh-huh. all of our affiliates and to the audience. Yes. Uh, and I'd be happy to elaborate more on that, but that's, you know, it's a pretty deep subject of how we're doing it. We're going to be introducing our native mobile app over the course of the, the summer, uh, which is a very big undertaking. Uh, we're constantly enhancing our uh, contributor content features and our interactivity. So our roadmap has lots of goodies in it. And now that we've, we've kind of reached this plateau of stability and scalability, uh, you know, we're under full sail and we're just cranking. So, uh, you know, just stand by because there's lots of really good things coming. And uh, like you, uh, you know, we just, there's just this love affair of public radio and community and college radio and, and the commitment that people put into it and an appreciation of how unique it is in the world. The American public radio institution is unique. There, there are other countries that have some public radio, notably Australia and Germany, but they're not uh, as robust and extensive as it is in America. And uh, I think that now more than ever, uh, we really need to support and preserve and do it. everybody needs to chime in that cares uh, to, to just keep public radio vital and doing well uh, in this in this climate where our First Amendment rights are are in jeopardy. And, uh, you know, there's threats to remove funding from the CPB and all that. So it's just a very important undertaking. And I'm glad we share that. Amen, brother. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I, I would add to the um, there's sort of a there's a new media monoculture sort of uh, emerging now, it's getting clearer and clearer as the as this decade proceeds. And it's it's awful nice to think of 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 people coming together in a radio station to create some media together that um, maybe it gets mentioned on these uh, giant media monoculture websites, but it doesn't necessarily have to live there. And uh, of course, I'm talking about Facebook and Google, uh, YouTube, the Apple. Well, thank you, Kenneth Pushkin. You are the CEO and founder of Radio Free America for joining us. And as well, Jeff Abrams, station relations manager for Radio Free America for telling us about Radio Free America and also for indulging us in in a really fun conversation about uh, amazing radio initiatives and uh, community radio stations. Really appreciated being there. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Paul and Eric. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks to both of you and to Radio Survivor for uh, uh, doing your part to keep the close-knit community together and to build awareness and education about uh, what our uh, future holds for us. Well, thanks again to Jeff Abrams and Kenneth Pushkin of Radio Free America. I'm so glad you could join us to talk about your website and also about your love of uh, these these special radio stations, these, you know, we're, 
I'm not happy about the adjectives we have at the moment. Non-commercial is just a, a big non before the word commercial. Yeah, that's right. Public radio is uh, too big of an umbrella. Uh, community radio stations leaves some radio stations out. So uh, if you have any clue as to which adjective I should be using, if Radio Survivor accomplishes one thing as a as a ongoing project, maybe it's to define these stations uh, what is the word? Let us know. Give us an email, <laughs> podcast at radiosurvivor.com or tweet us at Radio Survivor. We'd love to hear from you. Of course, we'd love to hear from you about anything we've talked about here on the show. Is there a great radio station you'd like to tell us about or something you discovered yeah. at Radio Free America? Email us, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And you can learn about all the things we talked about here on the show at our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 125. Of course, you can subscribe to the show as a podcast at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. We have all the instructions there in case you don't know how to subscribe or you don't even know what that means. We, we want to try and help yeah. you out. And of course, we're heard on great radio stations around the country. And if you know of a station or you're at a station that would love to air the program, go to radiosurvivor.com slash radio to learn more. Yeah, Radio Survivor, we're here. We are trying to tie the tight, the ties tighter we're trying to knit together these disparate radio stations all around the country and even the world there's these uh i'm going to use the word community i still don't like that adjective but it's good enough where there are these community radio stations and and community tv stations right and community media community media and they're doing great work in their communities in their towns and cities and neighborhoods um but on a bird's eye view uh scale there's not a lot of uh, tying it together. There's not a lot of uh, connecting the threads going on. And there are folks making that effort, like the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, and there's the Grassroots Radio Coalition, which puts on the Grassroots Radio Conference. Yeah. But, and but now again, there's RadioFreeAmerica.com, and, a website and, and, where and you I go hope listen we to can these count, stations. And I hope we can count RadioSurvivor.com. And I want to remind everyone that this is a labor of love uh, as well, and we depend on listeners and readers to help us do it, to learn how you can support Radio Survivor, please go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Eric, thank you for another uh, really fun episode of the show. Yeah, it's always good to hear from people that care about radio and have uh, devoted their lives yeah. to these to these projects. I think I just always want to remind myself that, um, you know, Radio Survivor was started. The word Radio Survivor was chosen um, because it did seem as though the internet was going to destroy these things. And uh, that's not necessarily inevitable. No, in fact, in the internet, I think, is providing yeah. crucial highways and it's providing those threads to knit it together, but, in fact. But I do think that we're, it, it is a time where the risk is there, that, that these independent voices and what we, what we have in all of these teeny radio stations, podcasts, and uh, if there's a lesson of the last 40 years in the United States, at the very least, is that you you cannot take things for granted, especially if you love them and you need to pay attention. And uh, it's up to you. It's up to each of us to help these things uh, stay to survive and to flourish. And so we really appreciate that you spent an hour with us here at Radio Survivor. And we hope you'll be listening to us again. And have a good week, everybody.